Creative Babble. Hopyabera used the medical system as a weapon and almost killed her youngest daughter. Hope force-fed her daughter salt and drained out her blood to make her seem anemic. Here's a rare interview with Hopyabera from the Fort Worth Telegram. Especially when she had the port put in. There was a lot of things that I could have done that would have straight up killed her. I tried to even... Obviously, I was hurting her, but I wasn't trying to hurt her. What kind of mother would do something this horrible? Only a woman that would do that to her own child could be a monster like that. Yeah. Women like Hope Yabera are monsters. But I wonder, can these mothers be saved? Is there any way that they can live a normal life without harming anyone? That question just seems ludicrous. Can an arsonist walk into a dry forest holding a book of matches without it going off? Can a cannibal live amongst us without ever succumbing to their urge? Maybe there's no hope for these women. I'm exactly where I need to be. Which is why I play guilty. I'm exactly where I need to be. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how to treat this disorder, if it's even possible. And also, what happens when we know a suspicious mother? How do you report the suspected abuse? And what happens when you get it wrong? We're going to get into all of that. Plus, we're going to talk about Hope Yubera's downfall. I'm Javier Leyva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Beatrice Yorker, who you heard from in the previous episode, is a psychiatric nurse and an attorney who spent most of her career doing research on Munchausen by proxy. Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy are high shame, high denial disorders. She says they're very similar to other compulsive addictive behaviors. Like substance abuse, anorexia, sex addictions. And just like any other addiction, in order to treat them, you have to go into somewhat of a 12-step model. You have to say you have to acknowledge that you're helpless over your addiction. You have to develop better coping skills, and you have to take it a day at a time to stay in recovery. And anorexics know this. People with bulimia know this, that recovery is an ongoing struggle. Beatrice Yorker says that she's seen mothers pull back from this behavior. We had one mother who was taking too much of her own Adderall. And if you take too much Adderall, Adderall is speed, right? So if you take too much Adderall, you can get a little psychotic. So the mother would keep bringing her kid into the emergency room saying things like, we went and got a drive through Wendy's hamburger. And when the kid was drinking his soda, all of a sudden he started talking out of his head. He was saying things like, I'm not myself. 
she had become psychotic on her Adderall. Beatrice Yorker also says that some cases could be financially motivated. I'm working cases right now that involve parents who are getting disability benefits for their child. And so they're desperate to keep their child labeled as developmentally disabled or as autistic or as having attention deficit disorder. And they coach the kids. They say, you, you know, you'll get an ice cream after this doctor's visit if, if you do this and act like this. When we think about Munchausen by proxy or, or any of these, you know, situations, we think that it's almost like a lost cause, right? But how many, have you seen any success stories? Yes. I have reunified the mother who was taking too much Adderall. We said to her, stop, get down on your Adderall. You're, you're having delusions. Your child didn't swallow some spaceship thing from their drink at Wendy's. No, your kid's okay. We often tell them they need to get a, a job. We very often find other custodial people in that child's life. And as long as we can restrict the mother from over-medicating and doctor shopping and there are eyes on the child and the child gets back in school or the child gets out of a wheelchair and those kinds of things, then yeah, every child wants their parents to be the best that they can be. I think that's what every kid wants because they're supposed to be, your parents are the people that are supposed to protect you, right? So the hallmark of child abuse, including Munchausen by proxy child abuse, is that the perpetrator, the parent, puts their own needs first and they don't have empathy. Beatrice says that the best thing to do for a child is to get it away from the abusive parent. Termination of parental rights often does save a child's life. If the parent can't stop the abusive behavior within six months, we need to put the child up for adoption. So it doesn't matter what is mentally going on with the perpetrator. If they are over-medicalizing or medically neglecting their kid, causing them to be sicker or perceived as sicker than they are, then that is abuse. This is really important because when people think about Munchausen by proxy, it's such a such an odd term. It's very murky. It puts the it, it implies that the disorder is the perpetrator's disorder. But what you're saying here is that it doesn't matter what the perpetrator's disorder is. It's that it's abuse first, right? Absolutely. It's every time I go to court, I explain to the mother's attorney that I am not here to diagnose the mother. I'm not here to diagnose factitious disorder imposed on another. The over-medication, the over-treatment, the withdrawal from social activities, the isolation that has been happening is abuse. It's just like I don't have to diagnose a sexual offender with pedophilia. All I have to say is this child has been sexually molested. This child has been sexually abused. And that, I'm a mandated reporter. That is my qualifications. I'm not there to diagnose the mother. You know, one of the things that strikes me from talking with you is the perception that the public has about Munchausen by proxy is that when they think Munchausen by proxy, they think Gypsy Rose. And that is such an extreme case, right? Yeah. Would you have just painted for me th this picture of a case as small as a parent taking too much Adderall, having delusions, and that's so small, right? 
people need to realize that Munchausen by proxy is not this freak case that you saw on HBO. You may know one person or several people that may be in this circumstance and you just don't know how to recognize it because you're expecting it to be Gypsy Rose. But in fact, most cases, if I understand what you're saying, seem to be a lot smaller. What I want people to understand is everyone in their sphere of knowing children probably knows a child who is being over-medicalized. Everyone probably knows a child whose mother is getting some kind of a compulsive need met by having a sick child. We, we just see it, you know, teachers, therapists, family members. Who do you think in your family or in your neighborhood or at school, are there any kids you can think of who are being over-medicalized? Well, when you put it that way, I know lots of people who I feel are over-medicalizing their children or elderly parents. My mom, bless her heart, has a stash of over-the-counter medicine at the ready anytime someone gets sick. We jokingly call her Dr. Death and refuse to take anything she offers us. Is my mom like Tanya Fernandez? Is my mom a little munchausy too? Surely not, right? Just kidding, mom. I know you're listening. You're, you're not a Munchausen mom. <laughs> so how sensitive should we be around friends and family who we suspect are going overboard with medications? And what about the people who are constantly doom-scrolling WebMD, self-diagnosing themselves? One of my favorite memes is from the Dos Equis guy. It reads, I don't always look up my symptoms on WMD, but when I do, I have cancer. Here's author and podcaster Andrea Dunlop again. We all know hypochondriacs, right? But how is that different? Is it a spectrum? No, hypochondria is very different. So a hypochondria is someone who legitimately believes that they are sick or that their child is sick. So, you know, the sometimes someone will be flagged and when they are, you know, if the when the doctors are like I said, the child abuse team looks more closely, they'll say, this is just an anxious parent. This is a parent that is bringing their child in to the doctor a lot because they're legitimately worried that they have problems. Munchausen by proxy is characterized by intentional deception. So knowingly lying to the doctors, faking tests, falsely reporting symptoms, that kind of thing. So it's not a parent that is overly worried. It becomes very evident when a person is intention being intentionally deceptive versus just being over-anxious. The key divider between what is abuse and what is just anxious, worried, legitimately concerned is lying. It's the fabrication. And that's why you need the separation test. Beatrice insists that the best way to determine if a child is being medically abused is to separate the kid from the mother. Most of the time, if the illness is not real, just removing the mother or the parent from the child is enough for the symptoms to miraculously go away. Here's the solve for this thing. It's just to remove the child from the situation. And you could do that simply by getting the mom or the perpetrator busy on something else, like you said, find the job. Because now, all of a sudden, you're not fixated on this kid anymore. Now you're fixated on something else or, you know, like you create that distance. But if that's not possible, get the kid out of that situation because the answer is really, you're, yeah, you could try to fix the parent, but you got to get 
that kid out is the number one priority, right? So if it's truly factitious disorder imposed on another, and this parent is getting their emotional needs met by having a sick kid, they will go to the ends of the earth to prove that they are the victim of the terrible social workers, the terrible doctors, the system that is taking away their child, irreparably harming their relationship with their child. They will sue anybody and everybody who's tried to remove the child from their care. That's so interesting. And, and, and these are the things to look out for, right? Like this is the whole reason why we're having this conversation is so that so whoever's listening to this could recognize these signs. Right? But at the same token, I want to caution all the listeners, everybody, that mothers of genuinely ill kids often look Munchausen-y because the system cannot fix everybody. So what happens when we get it wrong and accuse a mother of intentionally hurting her child when the child could very well be ill? Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. Is Munchausen by proxy a psychiatric condition that a doctor can diagnose, or is it more of a description of a crime? Honestly, it's not very clear-cut. And because of this ambiguity, it can be very difficult to identify. For example, did you know that there is a controversial new disorder that has all the hallmarks of Munchausen by proxy, but isn't Munchausen? There's this new thing called Pans and Panda. Pans and Pandas. It's a form of brain inflammation that causes your immune system to misfire. According to some reports, it causes extreme symptoms similar to OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Kids with pandas can develop fears about food and not eat. And if misdiagnosed, it can be confused with Munchausen by proxy. And while this is a real disorder that only a few medical centers like Stanford University can treat it, and have a protocol for treating it. It's a real disorder. But there are, you know, there are parents who zealously advocate for their kids. Gosh knows I would, you know, if, if my kid was acting funny and in pain and all of that, and the pediatrician just said, oh, it's all in their head or all in your head. I right, that that doesn't feel good, right. Yeah. I, I'd be angry and I'd be looking for the next doctor. I'd be online looking for 
support groups and looking for other people with symptoms and then going to the specialist that takes care of this. Here's Detective Mike Weber again. I have one case where a 16-year-old is at Cook's Children's and she has a feeding tube and a central line and she's getting nutrition into the vein because she's having these eating problems. She's impatient. The nurses know, she starts reporting that she's throwing up blood in the toilet. Well, the nurses go look in her toilet in her bathroom, the hospital room, and there's blood in there, but there's no splatter. The nurses being smart, like, well, she's not throwing up. She's bleeding herself from the central line into the toilet. Well, her, her mom was in the room with her. And she's 16. They tell the doctor. The doctor confronts both of them. They deny it. A day later, mom comes back to the doctor and says, my daughter has something to tell you. Mom sits at the bed holding her daughter's hand as her daughter tells the doctor she's bled herself. Now, that that hand holding can either be a form of support or a form of control, right? Now, my initial thought on that was, well, mom has to be involved. What 16-year-old would do to themselves, right? But me, I took me and one of my coworkers who was pregnant at the time, very motherly. We went over there and our plan was, the nurses had said that the two were texting each other while the nurses were in the room. So our plan was to separate them and look at the text messages. Well, very fortuitously, when we got there, Mom was down getting a drink downstairs. So I caught her coming off the elevator. She never even had a chance to talk to her daughter before she talked to me. She went to her room. I talked to her. I interviewed her. When you confront these offenders with this, they get extremely upset and demanding. And how dare you? You know, when I told mom, you know, the concern here is that, you know, you're involved in this and there's possible Munchausen by proxy. She's like, why would anyone want to do that to their kid? I mean, not a reaction you would get. Now, mom gave me her phone. There were no text messages on her phone. She's like, I delete all my text messages when they come in. She didn't have time to delete them. So she had to be telling me the truth. She didn't know we were coming. But uh, my partner, after I got mom in the side room, my partner then went into the uh, girl's room and got her phone. And the text message between mom and the girl were mom telling the girl, I can't believe you've done this. I can't believe you've faked this for years. You know how much money you've called. I mean, you need to do what the doctors tell you to do. Extremely appropriate, right? So that was a case where if it was, you wouldn't have found that out, they, that could have been perceived as... Right, yeah. I mean, and that's that's the value of a police investigation. That mom would have at least been under suspicion for several, for at least the month that it took Dr. Kaufman to do the medical records. We still do the work, right? What we found in that instance was none of the problems started happening until she was 12 or 13. And so this was her way to get attention from her mom. And this is still Munchausen, but it's just to... It's to herself, right? Yeah, it's just to herself. So, and when they went to put her in the psych, they transferred her to Cook's psych ward. If that had been an offender, she would have lost her crap. Because when you go to the psych ward, that's separation from mom, right? Mom was like, go, take her. When she left the hospital, she left without a central line. She left out a feeding tube. And hopefully she got the psych help she needed because it's extremely concerning that she could be an offender when later in life on her own kids when she That's what kids. I was thinking. Right. That's what I was so thinking. So hopefully we stop something there, right? But who knows if another hospital would have caught it. There definitely wouldn't have been a police investigation. So mom could have had her kids taken away from her for no reason. Well, hell, it turns out that spotting Munchausen by proxy isn't as easy as I originally thought. But that shouldn't discourage you or all of us from being vigilant. Remember, like Beatrice Yorker said, it's not our job to diagnose it. Our only job is to say something. You are a mandated reporter. My, my daughter's teachers are mandated reporters. Uh, doctors are mandated reporters. Uh, police are mandated reporters. But what about us? Like, just the regular folks listening no. to this. No. 
right. you as the general public are not mandated reporters. It's a crime not to report suspected abuse. You don't need proof. You just have to suspect it. The general public has an ethical and a moral imperative to report. And most of the child abuse reports that are received by Child Protective Services are not from mandated reporters. It's from neighbors. It's from friends of the family. It's from relatives. And um, thank you. Thank you to the public that takes the risk and makes those reports. And it can be done anonymously. Most parents will figure it out, but all the general public can report anonymously. We talked about the science to look for and what could happen if we get it wrong. But let's talk about a case that they got it right. Let's get back to the Hope Yabera story. In our last episode, we heard the horrifying story of how she almost killed her youngest daughter. And if it wasn't for Hope's family, doctors, her daughter would have almost certainly died. Remember, while she was actively trying to kill her daughter, Hope also that she herself was dying of cancer. Here's Andrea Dunlop again. Hope just really has this devastating story. And so she has this cancer that, you know, she's been in remission for twice and then it comes back a third time. And this time she tells her family she's so tired, she's not going to fight it. So her family is devastated. Her brother and her dad and her sister sort of describe that experience of Hope gathering them all together and telling them, you know, this is the end. She got together with her husband and sat down with their three children and told them that Hope was going to die and, and sort of prepared them. And then things fell apart. Her mom, Susan, got a call from her doctor and a doctor who was treating her. She went into the hospital to receive palliative care and the doctor who was treating her couldn't find any record of her having cancer. And so he asked Susan, her mother, to, to see if she could find the name of her, the doctors who were treating her. Susan, Hope's mother, got a hold of Hope's insurance login and password. And that's when the truth came out. It could not find any evidence that Hope had ever had cancer. And so, in fact, it turned out Hope never had cancer. She'd never been diagnosed. And this is while she's in hospice. She's sitting, yes, <laughs> yes. She was going in for, for palliative care, so she's at the hospital. And so that was the event that then sort of caused this cascading of effect of, if Hope has been lying about this, what else has been a lie? This discovery led to other horrifying revelations. If her cancer was fake, then what else was a lie? Well, remember that pregnancy where she lost the twins at six months? She kept their ashes in an urn. And when the family flipped over the urn, it was completely empty. If she's lying about all of this, then what else is not true? Is her youngest daughter even sick? Her youngest daughter, who supposedly had cystic fibrosis, which is also had anemia, right? Hope is, says that she's dying. Her daughter has a very serious disease, but also has an anemia. It, there's a, a part in the podcast that was just really struck me because she's telling her daughter, she's almost saying goodbye to her daughter. She's writing these goodbye letters to all her children. Yeah, that was something that really struck, struck me as a parent as well, of just the idea of sort of sitting together with your husband and, and your children and telling them all that you're going to die. She talks about how she 
she's going to heaven. She basically intimates that that her youngest is probably going to join her there sooner than later. So that was sort of pretty chilling thing to read, I think. I think what always gets me about these cases is it's the detail. It's the, the level of detail um, that people go to to sort of create this this alternate realities. Her whole family was preparing for her death. The cystic fibrosis is, is a genetic disease. So I'm wondering why she was being treated for a disease that she didn't even have. One of the big tasks before Mike Weber, when he started investigating the situation, was trying to figure out how she had so convincingly faked cystic fibrosis. And as it it turns out, it's not all that difficult because it is a genetic condition. There is a genetic test, but the more common test is the sweat test. So this is a very simple test where they, you know, affix a patch to the child's skin and let the child run around and produce some sweat. And then they basically see how much salt is in the sweat. And if they have a very elevated level of the salt in their sweat and they are having these other symptoms, that's considered a positive screening for cystic fibrosis. So that that test is quite easy to fake. And that is basically how Hope pulled it off. And there is, you know, this very, one of the first things they did when they had the suspicion that maybe the the youngest child was not sick is they brought her in to redo the sweat test. Hope was even trying to sort of mess with the patch, like even under those circumstances. And so I think that one is not that hard to pull off. Hope is also accused of draining the blood out of her daughter's port, making her seem anemic. But if that's not twisted enough, wait till you hear this next part. Hope Yabera was working as a chemist at various different companies during the time her daughter was allegedly sick. Not only was she force-feeding her daughter salt and making her look anemic, she also may be responsible for poisoning her daughter with pathogens from her lab. The samples that came out of her daughter, what they determined after digging into the medical records was that that wasn't possible, that she must have introduced the pathogens into her daughter's system. Then you mentioned she was a chemist. That's how she got access to these pathogens. But even even her work and her supervisors at work started getting suspicious about her Yeah, behavior, in right? the course of his investigation, Mike was looking into her work history and found that she had actually been fired from a previous job because she had lied about having a PhD, which she did not have. One of her coworkers who was, you know, working in the HR department and was looking into her got mysteriously sick. And they traced that back to Hope as well, that they think that she put pathogens on her water bottle. No one was safe. Even her coworkers yeah. were potential victims, Because right? they're... I think a lot of this is wrapped up in they're female. They look and present normally. They look like the kind of mom next door. It's still hard, I think, for people to conceptualize of how dangerous a person like this is. Did you ever expect that you were going to get the opportunity to actually speak to her? I mean, I I didn't even know if I wanted to in the beginning, to be honest. As I got further into the podcast, I got really more and more determined to talk to her. We had a back and forth. She agreed. She pulled out. She agreed. She pulled out several times. We made plans to go see her. She lives in, or at the time of this recording in summer of 2021, she was living in Idaho. We made arrangements. My producer and I to go out there. She pulled out at the last minute. And then I said, okay, we're coming out there. I really had no idea what to expect. But oh, lo and behold, she came in. She was ready to talk. So that, you know, was really down to the wire. And I thought, oh, we might have a real write around on our hands where I'm just going to be doing a podcast episode about me waiting in a diner. Your podcast is called Nobody Should believe me should we believe anything 
that Hope told um, you? No. <laughs> I mean, here's here's what I think about what, what Hope said, right? Because it's very complicated. I mean, she is not healed. She is not cured. She told me a bunch of lies in the lead up to, to the interview about why she couldn't do the interview. She said there was a pending civil case. You know, that's not true. She pretends to be deaf still. That is something she's been, that's an affectation she's had for a long time. I was very aware of that. She's done that in other interviews. Say that she says that she's deaf. How deaf? Like she's slightly deaf? Like she was she able to, how are you communicating with her? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty straightforward because well, she's not actually deaf. The idea of what she's presenting is that she speaks with a sort of affectation. She does this kind of fake sign language. She claims to be able to read lips. So one of the most interesting moments, which we didn't, I didn't really end up calling out. This is a little behind the scenes tidbit for you. An exclusive. <laughs> An exclusive. <laughs> her boyfriend came along with her to the interview. It's a whole other story. When we were sitting there, you know, we were talking about her family and we, you know, spent all this time with her family and we said that they had said some really nice things about her and did she want to hear it? You know, so you hear that moment in the interview and yeah. my producer pulls out the tape and, and plays a little bit of our interview with Nick. So we're sitting there at the table. Tina, my producer, and I know that Hope is not deaf and that she can hear this audio. Hope knows that Hope is not deaf and can hear the audio. Hope probably knows that we know she's not deaf. The boyfriend is insisting that she cannot hear it because she's deaf. And so we're all just doing this charade and you hear Tina repeating what's said on the audio. And this is so she can read the lips. So and this is because lips. we're all sort of playing along with this thing. And it was just so surreal. And I was just looking at sort of Hope's face while her boyfriend was insisting that she couldn't hear it. And we're like, we'll play it really loud. It was in a kid, she's deaf, she can't hear it at all. And we're, okay, we'll, we'll tell her what they're saying. <laughs> It was so preposterous. It was in the middle of a diner. And this is in yeah. a diner. Yeah, there was. I mean, there weren't. It wasn't. Around. It wasn't packed oh, or anything. That just shows you that this is going on now. Oh still yeah, with her, like she can't. She can't give it up. I wanted to run a couple things that she said. I jotted them down. She said she regrets hurting her kids. She said she was selfish. She said she didn't do it to hurt them. And she said she did it because she didn't know any better. How much of that do you believe? I mean, yeah, and we can sort of t take that point by point, right? I think one of the interesting things about, you know, those comments like that she said she didn't do it to hurt them. I think that that's probably true, right? It's not that they're getting a sadistic pleasure out of hurting another person. But there is a profound lack of empathy to be able to objectify your children in that way, to not care that you're hurting them and be able to put your own emotional needs above their well-being. As far as does she regret it, I think most likely, unfortunately, she regrets it not because of the pain she caused, but because of what it's cost her. Right. She got caught. She got she caught. She lost everything. She doesn't have, I mean, do I think she would like to be back with all of those people that loved her? Yes. Do I think that she's really capable of having a healthy relationship with them? No. And so I think that idea of it being a really compulsive behavior, of it being, of someone feeling desperate, you know, of like, this is the only way they can feel loved. It's almost as though people who have this, it's like the only way they can metabolize love. Like the rest of us get love from like, you know, whatever our love language 
languages, right? Like hugs and kisses and words of affirmation. And the only way that they can feel loved is to have people be responding to these very dramatic situations and be getting sympathy and be getting attention and sort of feel like they're in control of everyone around them. Yeah, I mean, I just thought that was probably the most honest thing she said during an interview is that she said she did it to feel loved. It's manufactured love. It's it's kind of like we take people for granted and then all of a sudden you find out somebody is sick. Somebody that you love is sick. Then it's not love. You're not giving them more love. You're giving them more attention. She said love, but really yes. what she meant was I wanted more attention, which is the underlying problem with all these cases, right? Is that these people are seeking attention. So we all understand what that is. That you go through something horrible or you get sick or you have a tragedy in your family and you have this outpouring of love and support and you're able to see suddenly how much people love you. Like we always talk about that, right? You really learn who your friends are and you learn who really loves you when you have these sort of hard times. And so I think it's a person exploiting that, but it's a feeling that we can all sort of relate to. Now, most of us would never, you know, go to anything like these links. Whether or not someone like Hope Yubera can fully be rehabilitated is hard to imagine. After all, could Ted Bundy have been rehabilitated? Could Jeffrey Dahmer? Eh, probably not. But Andrea Dunlop remains hopeful. I like to leave a little bit of a door open for that possibility. Maybe that's because that's what I want to believe. I'd like to believe that too. I'd like to believe that we're all capable of change because if we're not, then what a waste. I think there are some irredeemable people in this world, but for the most part, I think we're all capable of change and we should all allow that space. And I think that that's, that's how it came across to me when, with your interview with Hope. I, I, I think it was worth your time because you weren't just spreading her lies, but you were allowing her to articulate what she has done to reflect on what she has done. And I think that that's worth a lot because there's not a lot of people in her situation that do admit what they did. You know, most people I would imagine would be in denial. Guess what? I am back with a brand new episode on our old pal, Frank Abagnale Jr., Yes, I've been letting new information, new research, and new interviews pile up so that I could bring you one hell of an update episode. I talked to new witnesses that describe one of Frank Abagnale's real-life capers, plus other wild adventures like Frank showing up with a paper badge and a toy gun. Not kidding, by the way. And get this. Frank Abagnale was supposed to be this keynote speaker at a fraud conference in Ohio. And that conference asked me if I could join him after his presentation. And I said, yes, of course. So if you want to listen to part nine of the real Catch Me If You Can series, you could go on Patreon or join Pretend Plus on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is look for the subscription button and the episode will be waiting right there for you. Plus, I have a new series coming out after that about a Cuban spy, the most dangerous spy in American history that you'd never heard of. All those episodes plus bonus content is available for my subscribers. So if you want to support this little independent podcast that could join Patreon or Apple Podcasts on Pretend Plus. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'll talk to you next week. Created back.